This morning we're kicking off a six-week teaching series in the book of Psalms. Uh, Rest easy, we're not going to make it all the way through the book of Psalms. We're just looking at this idea of worship and really how worship is who we are. Uh, We call it worship as life. And each of the six weeks we'll take a particular psalm, uh, and there's many others that will speak to the same thing. We'll take a particular psalm and try to show you an aspect of this idea as worship as a way of life. Uh, And so this morning we're starting uh, in Psalm 24 with the concept of worship as identity. Worship as identity. We're going to do, uh, at least for today, maybe continue through the psalm series. Instead of me reading the psalm to you, we're going to read it together as a congregation to get a flavor of what the psalms would have been like as the people in Israel were reading them together. So this is Psalm 24. Let's read this together. Ready? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he? This King of glory, the Lord Almighty, He is the King of glory. Let's pray together. Father God, we recognize that You are the King of glory, that the earth is Yours and all that is in it. This morning, would You help us to find our identity as part of the creation that You have made, living a life of worship towards you. We ask it in your holy name. Amen. So one of the core questions of Psalm 24 is who can ascend the hill? And I'm not sure if we have any mountain climbers uh, amongst us this morning, Uh, but if you are a mountain climber, good for you. Uh, I once was a prolific mountain climber. Uh, I'm no longer a prolific mountain climber. I really have accomplished all the mountain climbing that I've wanted to in my life. And uh, I'm happy to talk you through some of that. I've scaled some pretty impressive mountains in my life. Uh, But I've always found the scaling of mountains to be sort of an exercise in futility. There's not a great payoff at the top of the mountain. Have you ever found that out to be true? For instance, I scaled Mount Washington in New Hampshire on the cog train. And... um, And when I got to the top, there was a small pile of rocks that said, you've reached the summit of Mount Washington. That was like a six-hour train ride up that mountain just to find this small pile of rocks. It was futility, worthless. 
Later in life, after I really built up my endurance, I scaled Pikes Peak in Colorado by car. And when I reached the top, they were selling special donuts up there that tasted worse than regular donuts. What's the point? Not only to mention that, we made it to the top of Pikes Peak, and it was a foggy day, so we could see nothing. And it was like August 2nd, and it was sleeting on the top of Pikes Peak. Mountain climbing is an exercise in futility. Who wants to do this, right? There's no great payoff at the top except for the realization you must now descend back off the mountain. Uh, Perhaps you're a much more prolific mountain climber and you're like actually achieving climbing the mountain is worth something, Adam, if you don't, you know, catch the train or ride the car up there. And that may be true, uh, but I'd rather listen to your stories about it than endure it myself. And the psalmist in some way is saying the same thing this morning to us when he says, who can climb this mountain? And I think what we find out at the end is, uh uh-oh, maybe nobody. And we've got to reckon with that together. So what we want to do this morning, I think the psalmist in asking this broader question is really driving at uh, some core identity issues, an identity of who God is. And then also an identity of who we are as humanity. Uh, And in those things, we figure out this bigger question of who can ascend the mountain. So the first is the identity of God. Who is God? And you remember, as we read it together, it starts out very powerfully in the first two verses of this psalm, laying out a compelling identity for God. It says, the earth is his and everything that is in it. The psalmist is reckoning back to the opening chapters of the scripture. He's saying that God is the creator of the universe. We believe, as followers of Jesus, that God is the ex nihilo creator. That means that he created out of nothing. Now, the point of creation is not to figure out what's happened between now and then. The point is to say that God is the source of creation. This is what the authors of Scripture want us to know Not how long did it take him, not how exactly did he do it, not did he use other methods, not how was science involved, but that God himself sits as the source of it. And the psalmist gives us sort of a picture of this. It says, from the waters all the way up, right? From the the bottom all the way to this top of the mountain, that the earth is his, right? Because he is not simply a conquering king of a foreign land, he's the creator of the entire earth. And therefore, all of the earth and everything that is in it, rightfully, ought to be things that praise and worship this creator God. Now, if it is true, that, as the psalmist says, that, that the earth is God's and everything that is in it, then it also must be true that every single aspect of the earth is God's. That regionally, Globally, individually, everything and every part of it belongs to him, is sustained by him, and rightfully ought to worship him. And in it we also see this particularly, particular note of importance, especially to Israel in that day, but also to us as the church today, that God is a universal God. Now hear me what I mean when I say universal That is that God is not a God, but he is the God. And that God is not just the God of Israel, 
but is the God of the entire world. And certain things are true of this, not just then that God has rule over these things, but also that God's heart is for all of these things. Do you see it? Sometimes we, just like national Israel in that day, become so, so, uh, so convinced that God is simply for us that we fail to understand his global and all of history purposes for the entire world. It's not hard to believe because we're pretty much consumed with ourselves, aren't we? And so we like a God that we can control and manipulate and think is working on our schedule. And yet the psalmist wants national Israel to know the same way that this pastor wants this church, and particularly me, to know that this God is the God of the world and the God of the universe, and his purposes are far greater than we can conceive or understand. But we must believe that he's working for the full good, not just of us, but of the entire world. And therefore, everything that is in the world ought to be oriented towards worshiping and praising this God. God is the creator. And the second thing about who God is, the identity that we get, is wrapped up in this idea that God is on a mountain. The psalmist is consumed with this, and this is not his own making. This is a continual Old Testament narrative uh, about the God of the mountain. It's really rooted in the Moses and Sinai story. You remember this? For those of you who are unfamiliar with uh, Moses meeting God at Sinai, uh, God had, had delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And he had done it through Moses, who had become their deliverer, their human deliverer through the power of God. Dramatically, through plagues on Egypt, parting of the Red Sea had led this people out. And as they come out into the desert, God meets, or excuse me, Moses meets God on Mount Sinai, where God delivers a covenant to his people. But enmeshed in this story is this idea that the people are on the ground and God is on top of the mountain. There's this proximity of God to his people, but yet not a cohabitation, as it were. And there's this standard that can't quite be met, so much so that it's only Moses who goes up there. And the people are okay with that, because it seems kind of frightening to go up there. God is the God of the mountain. This pursuit of his people, but this distance and this separation really has to do with what we call holiness. That is that God has a certain standing, a certain righteousness. It's why the psalmist, when he begins to answer the question, who can climb the mountain, says two particular things about this person who can climb the mountain. The first is that they have clean hands, and the second is that they have a pure heart. And what we're saying is someone who is completely clean and, and unsort of sullied by sin or deceit or deception or rebellion in any way. God is the God of the mountain. Humanity is the humanity of the valley. We get this clear picture from this psalm of who God is, the creator, the king. All the earth is his and everything that is in it. He's the God of the mountain. We're the people of the valley. And so we rightly then turn, and the psalmist, I think, wants us to, to begin to try to see who are we then in light of who God is. And we take these same two concepts and begin to try to wrestle through who we are. That is that if God is creator, then we are creation. And this is very different. So if we, if we believe that the psalmist is right when he says that 
God is the king of the earth and everything in the earth belongs to him, then it rightly follows that the earth cannot belong to anything or anyone else. It cannot belong to a particular nation, even though some of us in the United States think we kind of rule the roost, right? It cannot belong to a particular political persuasion, even though many of us are convinced that might be true. It cannot belong to a particular ideology. It cannot belong to a particular level of intellect. And oh, by the way, it can't belong to me or to you. We begin to see identity coming in this because so much of what we're after in this world is that kind of standing, isn't it? Now you might say, well, I'm not trying to rule the world. And I might say back to you, yeah, maybe you are. Maybe you are just in your own particular way. And so what we begin to see then is that creation takes this posture as worshipers of God. If the whole world belongs to God and everything that is in it, then we belong to God and we rightfully have this posture of worship or submission or orientation towards God, the God of the mountain, the people of the valley. And in it, I think, we find our actual true and pure identity as humanity. We, at our core, are worshipers. Worship is our identity. At its core, in many ways, it is what we were created to be. And I'll suggest to you a little bit as we move on, we do it really well, although often misguided. At our core, we're worshipers. So the psalmist then turns and asks the question, so who can ascend this mountain? Who can kind of have this standing with God, be in his presence? Therefore, what does it mean to be true worshipers? What does it mean to truly be humanity? To take back what once was true of humanity in the garden before the arrival of sin and evil? And fascinating, uh, what the psalmist, I think, tries to say, let me just kind of summarize it, and then we'll get back into it a little bit, is that true worship is really having a heart or a life that is completely given to God, fully given to God, and therefore, people who are completely given to living the way of God. People who are completely given to God, and therefore, people who are completely given to living the way of God. This is what it means to be true humanity. This is what it means to be true worshipers. And the psalmist gives us two sort of statements that help us get at this. Did you notice this? The first is, and we talked about this already in relation to God, the first is, true worshipers are people who have clean hands and pure hearts. It's the first statement. What's going on here? This is a statement about holiness or about standing. He says that these are people who are internally pure, clean, or excuse me, pure hearts, and who are externally pure, clean hands. People who are internally fully given to God and therefore fully given to living the way of God. Pure hearts, clean hands. And then the second thing he says is that these are people, true worshipers are people who do not trust an idol, so the, and they do not swear, it's in the NIV, it's a, the translation isn't great, it says do not swear by false gods. 
It actually just says, do not swear falsely in the original language. And I think that's an important thing to, to notice here because I think he's giving us another kind of insight into what he's speaking about here. This life fully given to God and therefore fully given to living the way of God. So therefore, we'll put it into summarizing the law as Jesus did. People who love God and love their neighbor. Do you see it? You remember when Moses does meet God on Mount Sinai, God gives him what we call the Ten Commandments. This is basically a summary of the covenant relationship. This is a marriage contract for God and the people. These are God's expectations of the people. If they live by this, they will be people who are true worshipers, people who can ascend Mount Sinai, who can live where God is. And you might remember the first several of these Ten Commandments have to do with loving God. They will not take another God before him. They will not serve idols. As Deuteronomy would later sort of summarize, these are people uh, who, who love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then the last part of these Ten Commandments, as we call them, has to do with how we treat our neighbors, how we treat people and other human, the rest of mankind, as it were. And these are things like, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not lie. And so what you have here is the psalmist taking two really important points out of these Ten Commandments to make the bigger point that true worshipers love God and love others. Completely given to God and therefore live the way of God. That is that they do not worship idols. They love God. And they do not swear falsely. They love others. It's a very similar psalm. in Psalm 15 that fleshes this out just a little bit more. Let me read this to you. It says in Psalm 15, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless. Who does what is righteous. Who speaks the truth from their heart whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, who casts no slur on others. He despises the vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord. He keeps his oath even when it hurts, does not change his mind. He lends money to the poor without any interest. He does not accept a bribe against the innocents. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. You get this idea of people who are so given to God that they're living God's way. These are true worshipers. So, isn't it interesting that when we talk about what it means to be true worship, it's an internal disposition towards God that leads itself to a full life living, live, excuse me, lived, lived uh, God's way. But when we think of worship, we think of it radically different, don't we? We think of what we just did. We sang some songs, maybe said a prayer. That's worship. This is a sermon. Well, I would suggest to you this is part of worship. And what you're going to do later today is part of worship. And how you live your life and orient your life is far more worship than what we just did over these last 15 to 20 minutes. I love singing. and Singing is a great expression of a heart given to God. But if that's the full extent of worship, then you've missed the bigger picture of what it means to be a true worshiper. So worship is who we are more than what we do. And certainly not in a compartmentalized way. Now you might say, well, I'm not so sure about that. And I would say, yeah, if you really think about it, it's true. 
that there is not a moment in our life that we are not expressing worship of someone or something. That is part of our true identity that we can't help but worship. And what the psalmist wants us to understand is there is one person who is truly worthy of this worship. We live into our identity as worshipers, but sometimes we kind of mess it up, don't we? Sometimes we worship the wrong things. Sometimes we, as the psalmist suggests we shouldn't, we worship idols. And while our idols are probably not the primitive figurines or statues of the days of the psalmist, we have perhaps way more than they ever had. And if you want to do a quick inventory of your life to figure out what the idols in your life are, take these two standards that the psalmist gives us for true worship and see where they apply in your life. Talk about holiness. You may say, well, holiness is a God thing. How can that apply anywhere else? Well, holiness at its core is actually about standing. What gives you a high standing? What gets you to the top of the mountain? Holiness is the thing that sets God apart from others. And so I ask you, if you're trying to figure out what are the idols in your life, the first question is, what do you look to for standing? What do you look to for success? What do you look to for worth? What do you look to for value? And you'll begin to get a pretty clear picture of the things the psalmist is warning us against. Now, if you're anything like me, some of the things you might idolize are intelligence and education. Huge idol in my life, right? You might, the the opinions of other people, we idolize the affirmation or the opinions of other people. We idolize our professions and our vocations because it gets us places. We idolize our family. Dads and moms idolize their kids sometimes. All because these are things that we see as ways to get us standing or value in life. And then the second reality is where is your love directed? Now listen, Jesus tells us, God tells us to be people who love effusively. I'm not suggesting, well, you better not love anyone but this invisible God. But where does your love for other things and other people derive from? Does it derive from a true and genuine connection to the God of the mountain? Or from a desire to attain a certain standing? A certain level of acceptance, significance. It's in those places that we do the very hard and tedious work of identifying the things that vie for our worship, for our affection, for our effort. Or perhaps we, like very good modern people, have become prolific at compartmentalization. We're so prolific at this, aren't we? Because worship is the thing that we just did. Or worship is the thing that we will do. Worship is not an orientation of who we are. God is the thing that we do on Sunday, or he's the thing that we do at community group, or the thing that we do when we gather with our Christian people. But if the object of worship is truly to be in the presence of God, and if we really believe and take Jesus at his word, that because of his unveiling of the temple and the presence of God, that we are constantly in the presence of God, 
then worship has to be far greater than some simple act or some simple expression. It's far greater than some simple method or, or, or effort. And yet we have given those things far greater worth and value than we ever ought to. We are worshipers. And how we orient our life is how we express our worship. The psalmist wants us to know that. He doesn't say, who can ascend the hill? The one who raises their hand while singing. He doesn't say, who can ascend the hill? The one who sings the songs even on Tuesday, not just Sunday. He doesn't say, who can ascend the hill? The one who prays for three hours instead of 15 minutes. Who can ascend the hill? The one who has memorized Psalm 24. Right? Who can ascend the hill? The one who, they, they're spiritual. No. He says, the one who is fully given to God and therefore fully given to the way of God. And so what he's really pointing us to is something fascinating. He's pointing us to find our identity in God himself. Because there's an elephant in the room, isn't there? Or could we say there's an elephant in the psalm? Could we say that? Maybe. And the elephant in the psalm is, nobody meets the standards. What now? Are we simply the people of the valley and he's the God of the mountain? Is that how the story ends? Nobody meets the standards. You tell me who has clean hands. Nobody. The Apostle Paul, who gave his full life after his conversion to to following Jesus, who gave his full life, everything he had, to establishing the church and to having people embrace the gospel. I mean, he was fully given to God in every way you read. And yet, at the climax of his letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 7, he says, I do not have clean hands, right? He says, everything that I know I'm supposed to do, I can't do. And everything that I don't want to do, that's the stuff I seem to always do. If Paul doesn't have clean hands, what hope is there for you and me? And what about pure hearts? Are you familiar with David from the Old Testament? David is this great king. He's the one about whom it is written that he has a heart after God's. If anyone has a pure heart, it's David. And yet in a couple of weeks, we'll read Psalm 51 together, where David is confessing that he does not have a pure heart. Why? Because this great king, whose heart was fully given to God, had tried to find value in the conquest of women. And in an adulterous affair with Bathsheba that led to murder and all kinds of other inconceivable wickedness, David cries out to God and says, Give me a whole new heart. Create in me a clean heart. If the man whose heart is oriented after God is asking for a new heart, what hope is there for you and me? And the one who can climb the mountain is the one who does not worship idols. And yet, as Moses is on top of the mountain, what are the Israelites doing? If you're familiar with the story. They are literally making an idol. Led by the high priest of Israel, Aaron. He is the one who's doing it with them. 
If the high priest who had seen the rescue of Israel through the great miraculous acts of God, the separation of the Red Sea, the parting, the great defeating of all these these vicious armies, in the course of just a few days of Moses representing them on the mountaintop, turns to worshiping a literal idol. What chance do you and I have to be people that don't worship idols? I love what Psalm 20 says, and and some of the prophets pick up on this too. They say, so we will not trust in chariots or in horses, but we will trust in the Lord our God. And in this wonderful proclamation, it's also also prophetically damning, isn't it? Because we do trust in chariots. And we do trust in horses. And you're saying, well, what are chariots and horses? They're talking about war figures. They're saying, for the real battles of life, what do you trust? And our chariots and our horses might look like a whole lot of things, but oftentimes they look far more like chariots and horses than the God who says, the earth is mine and all that is in it. So the elephant in the psalm, stares us in the face and says, what now? How will you climb the mountain? And for many of us, we are desperately trying to climb this mountain. This is what our life is like. We are so desperate for standing. So desperate for value, for worth, to prove ourselves, to find something of value in ourselves. Or we're so desperate to prove ourselves to God as these kind of true worshiper people, true worshiper people, that we are clawing at the side of this mountain, desperate to get up there. So many people blindly taking the journey up this mountain. Trusting in chariots called religion. I can be good enough. I can earn God's approval. If I fill my life with Christian stuff, that will get me up the mountain. So many people trusting in horses like moralism. I'm a good person. Like, I'm not like all these other people. I get it. They're not getting up the mountain. But I I can, right? Better than that. Trusting in chariots like proving myself. Well, look what I've made of myself in this life. And yet we all know that so much of life feels an awful lot like the old Greek story of Sisyphus eternally pushing a boulder up a mountain seeing the value that could be had, and yet the boulder continually falling down, only for him to start again. Friends, mountain climbing, can I just tell you? It's an exercise in futility. So many of you this morning have spent so much time trying to make it up the mountain And you've missed the bigger story. Because suddenly what we begin to see happen in this psalm, there's a a selah pause, right? The word selah in the psalms, we really don't know what it means. But some people surmise it's either like a a deep breath uh, or it's almost like a crescendo. And it fits right here, right? Because this whole story is going on. Look at God, he's this great and powerful thing and he's on the mountain. 
And, and you, who can get up the mountain? If, and then it's, there's this realization, I can't make it up the mountain. And there's a Selah. And then it says, open your gates and your doors. The God of the universe wants in. And we begin to see a whole shift in the orientation of the psalmist. It is no longer a story about humanity who cannot ascend a mountain, and rather now a story about a God who willingly descends the mountain for his people. He doesn't say, hey, when you get up here, I've got a spot for you. He says, open your doors so I can come in. We do not know the historical setting of this psalm, but some scholars surmise, and I happen to think they're probably right, although I can't give you exact proof of this, that the historical setting of this psalm might just be 2 Samuel chapter 6, where David is finally bringing the Ark of the Covenant into this national capital city of Jerusalem. You might remember the Ark of the Covenant for the people of Israel was the place that God's holy presence dwelt. And it would, it would be go, to go into the temple or into the tabernacle, into the holy of holy places where it would be dwelling amongst the people. That is, the God of the mountain has come down to dwell amongst his people. And so doing, he's won a great battle. And this God becomes the covenant God of the Old Testament. The God of Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, who's slow to anger, full of mercy. The, the Hebrew word hesed, this loving kindness that endures forever, no matter the wrong committed against him. Full of grace and mercy, slow to anger, descends the mountain. And through the sacrificial system of the old covenant, makes it possible for people with impure hearts and unclean hands who are given to serving idols, to still dwell in the presence of God. And I imagine David leading the people of Israel in singing this psalm as the Ark of the Covenant makes its way up the Temple Mount, or the Mount of Jerusalem before the Temple was built. But there's an ultimate fulfillment to this story too, isn't there? The ultimate truth of the God who descends the mountain is the person we know as Jesus. Who Paul writes in Philippians did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. Instead, he willingly descended and took on the form of humanity. You know what's fascinating? Most people believe that Psalm 24 was one of the many psalms that was sung on the first day of the week. It represented new creation. Uh, It represented the, the creative power of God, the new start of God, the arrival of God to Jerusalem. This psalm is so powerfully brought to life in Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, also on the first day of the week. Jesus, who people are saying he's the Messiah, he's the king of the earth, as he's on a donkey ascending a mountain to Jerusalem. Inside the temple, the priests are also singing Psalm 24. The Lord is the Lord of the earth, and all that is in it is his. Who can ascend the mountain? And outside, Jesus is ascending 
the mountain because he is the one who does have a pure heart and does have clean hands and never gave himself to an idol and never swore falsely. He's the one who can ascend the mountain of God. And in Jesus, God has descended the mountain. Jesus climbs the mountain not to simply take his rightful seat on a throne, but to take his willing place on a cross as the ultimate sacrifice so that the people of the valley can dwell with the God of the mountain. And in his resurrection, Paul reminds us that Jesus is vindicated. Remember those last verses of Psalm 24? The one who opens his gates to the Lord will be vindicated. Jesus, vindicated in his resurrection, becomes the rightful king of the earth and all that is in it. So then the question this morning that the psalmist really wants you to answer is not who can ascend the mountain. But it is, will you open your gates and doors to the God who has descended the mountain for you? Will your life be about what you can make of yourself? How you can earn standing through religion or some secular pursuit? Or will your identity be so found In God himself. The one who descends the mountain for you. This morning, I pray that you would embrace worship as identity. We are worshipers. It's who we are at our core. And if you would open the gates and doors of your life, you might embrace your place as a son and daughter of the God who descends the mountain. And you might embrace your identity as a worshiper of the king of the earth. As we close, I want to read Psalm 24 again to you. But I want to do it as I imagine it might have been read. I have no proof of this. This is my take on this. If you don't like it, that's okay. The psalmist writes, The earth is the Lord's and everything that is in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. This is the God of the mountain. And the psalmist says, But who can get up this mountain? Who can even stand in this holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. That person will receive blessing, a fullness of life that we long for, and vindication from God their Savior, a true standing and value. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. And then I picture the psalmist hearing this part of the psalm from three different voices. And picture this with me. I 
Picture the angels of God announcing, Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory might come in. And then I picture you or me behind the walls, behind the gates, asking this next question. Well, who is this King of glory? And then I picture God himself who has descended the mountain replying, I am the Lord, strong and mighty. I am the mighty God of battle. I have won the victory you long for. And the angels then say, So lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory might come in. And we from behind the walls say, Well, who is he, this King of glory? And God says, The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory the almighty, most powerful God who knocks on the door and gate of your life. Do you see the picture of the psalmist? The one who could rightfully take anything he wanted and yet pleads for the privilege of entering into your presence. The gospel stuns me anew. That the Almighty God, the ruler of earth and everything that is in it, asks us if he might dwell amongst us. Have you ever met or considered a God who was the very definition of love? A God who was the very definition of peace? of grace, of mercy. And this morning, I plead with you, and I plead with my own heart, to stop orienting our worship towards the wrong things, and instead find our identity in the one who has created us, who descends the mountain so that we can ascend with him. Can I pray with you?